Good morning and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. One of the most important things for a college to have is a seal of approval from an outside agency. This agency certifies on a regular basis that among other things, the institution is worthy of federal funding, is meeting accepted academic standards, is managing its finances appropriately and transparently, and is providing a quality experience for its students. This agency is often called an accreditation organization. My guest today is Dr. Larry Shaw, who is the newly installed president of the New England Commission of Higher Education. Larry and I will discuss the role that accreditation plays in not only colleges staying open, but also the unenviable task of ending a college and having it close. But we won't stop there. Larry was president for 15 years at Oglethorpe University in Atlanta, Georgia, and vice president of administration at Swarthmore College. Before that, where he reminds me, they dropped football. <laughs> so we'll talk about that too. He has spent a long career in Division Three, and also served on the Southern Athletic Association's President's Commission during this past spring of COVID sports closures. Larry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Karen. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. These are these are interesting times. Yes, they are. So let's start with your new role at uh, NECHE. NECHE is that ne okay? Yes, so rolls, give us an overview. Rolls, of what, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Let's just say NECHE rolls off your tongue better than Oglethorpe. It, it, well, yeah, <laughs> right, right. I guess it's better than a Nakubo, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, give us an overview of what the agency does and the role you play as president, and who are the other accreditation agencies around the U.S.? Sure. So NECHE is one of what, what used to be called the regional accreditors. The country was divided into seven regions, um, not scientifically, but... Um, you know, we, we have six states in New England. We accredit about 230 schools, although included in that are maybe a dozen schools abroad um, that sort of have an American style of education. Um, and then you've got you know, the other regions, like I came from the Southern region, SACS, COC was the accreditor down there. They're one of the, one of the big ones they've got. I don't know, it could, could be seven or 800 institutions they accredit. There's middle states, there's the Higher Learning Commission out also in sort of the middle part of the country, out west. So um, actually up until the 1st of July, the way the world worked was if you were in New England and you wanted to be regionally accredited, you would come to NECHI. And if you were in the South and you wanted to be regionally accredited, you'd come to SACS. Uh, Department of Education, um, in their sort of revamp of regulations uh, that went into effect 1st of July, um, sort of opened up the world to competition. So now, uh, NECHI, if its commission uh, chooses so, could accredit institutions uh, across the country. Um, so inst institutions in New England, now I have the choice of choosing to be accredited by NECHI or could go somewhere else and vice versa. So this is a, two of the seven regional creditors have announced that they're open to um, national, uh, to, to a national scope. Our commission actually at the end of this week is beginning a conversation about that. So it's, I, I don't expect schools to be run, run into the 
to the to the next accreditor, but it, it is an interesting, these are interesting times. So what we do, we really have two functions. Um, one is to help institutions improve, and we have nine standards that institutions have to comply with if they want to um, have our accreditation. You you mentioned a number of them, not by by number, but you know there's an institutional resource sort of financial standard. There's an academic quality standard. There's the student services standard. Uh, there's a governance standard, which interestingly enough is one that schools run afoul of more often than you might think. Um, and so there are, our institutions have to submit a, a, a extensive self-study every 10 years. Um, every five years in between that, we do a sort of mini little study. And then schools that end up on our sort of watch list for one reason or another, we, we, we might visit more often. If they're having financial trouble or if there's some governance issue, we, we have the ability to sort of step in when we need to step in. The, the other function is really um, more of a public one, which is to, to serve the public, um, to be transparent with the public, to demand that our institutions be transparent with the public around things like retention rates and grad rates, student success. Um, and so it's, you know, sometimes those two missions can bump up against each other where you're trying to serve, serve our member institutions, help them improve, but also sometimes institutions get themselves in a place where um, it's important for the public to know uh, that the institution's struggling in one way or another. And so, um, you know, in, in most cases, that's, it's, it's a pretty easy line to walk, but there are there are plenty of, there, there are increasing number of cases I'd say where that, that public function steps in. Um, so that's what we do. We have a staff of 11. Um, I'm in constant sort of communication, even off cycle with presidents, chairs of boards. Um, it's been fun. It's very, you're dealing with most of the same issues that you would deal with as a college president, but you've got a different hat on. So um, uh, it's been at least it, it's been a, it's been a good two months. So, help me understand. Help my listeners understand a little bit more about why regional accreditation would be opened up to national membership. What's the strategy with that? Yeah. So as you might imagine, the, the, the regional accreditors weren't a big fan of this. I think we were pretty pretty pleased with the way the system worked before. You know, we, we don't want institutions to be shopping around for not good reasons. There could be good reasons why an institution wants to maybe move, but you don't want an institution that feels like their accreditor is putting them through the ringer to go to run to somebody that they perceive would be easier. But this is sort of the, this came out of the Trump and DeVos administration with this sort of, you know, idea of, Competition is good, and um, uh, you know they're, 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 we are not the only accreditors in the world. Um, so there are some national accreditors. There are accreditors that focus on for-profit schools. Um, so it, 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 
Um, it's also, I guess, important, you know, the world has changed where it used to be, you know, colleges and universities had a single campus and it was in a single region. They weren't doing anything online and their students mostly came from a region and now it's the case where camp, you know, they have institutions have campuses across the country, they have campuses abroad, their students could be online coming from anywhere. So there's some rationale to sort of say that the regional thing doesn't hold the way it maybe used to. But, um, you know, I'd say we're, we're, we're all probably a little more anxious about what, what, what's going to come and um, we certainly, if we decide to, to broaden our boundaries, you know, we don't, it's not like we're going to have some aggressive marketing campaign to try to get schools to switch. So you won't be going after the Cal State system anytime soon, I assume. <laughs> no, no, exactly. <laughs> so <clears throat> I know my listeners will want to understand the role that an accrediting agency plays in athletics oversight. Can you tell us anything about that? So, yeah, so generally athletics would, you know, sort of fall under the sort of the, the standard around um, students and um, student services and student activities. It's possible that it, you know, it, it, could, it could blend into academics if there's something funny going on um, with regard to the intersection of academics and athletics and, and uh, <clears throat> Commissions have certainly, in the past, um, put schools on notice, put schools on warning for um, failures in that regard. So you know we don't um, we don't accredit athletic teams. We don't you know, but we accredit the entire institution. So these could also come up in matters of governance. You know, is the are athletics being governed? appropriately and properly without undue influence from a board. Um, again, on the academic front, is it, is it, um, are all students being sort of held to the same standard? Um, and yeah. for those of you that have been longtime listeners to the podcast, you'll know that I've talked about the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill having issues with its accreditation and also the University of South Carolina having issues with its accreditation, particularly around, particularly around board governance. So right. it is real, it does come up, especially when something is large and it hits the newspapers. Yeah, it is interesting. We, you know, we encourage all our institutions to, to be transparent with us. You know, I've gotten some calls over the last, since I've been here from school saying, you're, you're gonna read something in the newspaper in a couple of weeks, or we just wanna give you the heads up which we appreciate and we often would then maybe ask the institution to send us a letter or report about what's going on. You know, it could be a merger, it could be an acquisition. But we've, we've had a couple cases where we actually do read something in the newspaper and then I'll pick up the phone and call the president and say, oh, I just, uh, there's a little story about you. We would appreciate if we'd, we'd have heard it first, but could you share a little bit about what's going on? And, and um, there's, 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 there's a bunch of that now because there's so much activity on the, on the merger acquisition front more than we've seen before because of the financial stress schools are under. Yeah, makes sense. So let's talk a little bit more detail about um, how a school gets accredited 
And I know that there's an accrediting team that visits campus, but there's a lot of work that a campus has to undergo before that team ever step, steps on campus. So talk to us about that process. Right. So we work with, it's a, it's a self-study process. So an institution spends almost probably two, two years, it's supposed to be a um, very widely participatory process um, to present a, uh, a self-study that, that again, shows how they meet our nine standards, but also talks about the, the direction of the school, new directions, strategies, ambitions. Um, we get a, often usually see a draft of that report, make some comments to staff. Um, that report then goes to a team that visits. So we have, we have 2,000 volunteers that are all folks in higher ed, and generally on this, on the, on the big tenure of um, accreditation visits, it's a team of around eight um, that go from, with a team chair that, you know, come from, come from all different schools um, that do the study and they sort of land, land at the school for three or four days. Uh, right now they're landing virtually, um, all our visits are virtual. Um, you know, and just spend spend time with administrators, board members, open meetings of faculty, staff, and students. Um, they then write a report. Um, that report goes to the commission, so the the commission makes all the decisions. The staff are really um, in, a, in a support role. When a team goes out to a college, it, it goes out with a, with a chair who's a you know could be a president or provost of some other institution. Um, no staff member goes with them, um, so there that, that that's different in different regions. But in, in our region, that's the way it happens. And then our commission meets four or five times a year. We've got this meeting we have at the end of this week. We've probably got seventy agenda items that come up. So some of these are interim reports. Some of these are the full tenure reports. Some of these are um, reports we've asked for um, from institutions that they're reporting back. Uh, we have focus visits, so, you know, there could be a particular issue that, and on a focus visit, you might send just two or three members out. But it's, it's really interesting now, because since, since April, all these visits are remote, the commission meetings are remote. Um, I think we have, let me see, we have like 90 Zoom channels. I mean, we, you know, we're, we're, we're a big Zoom user. Um, wow. <laughs> but it's all, it, it's all worked pretty well. I mean, it's, um, it's not the same being face to face, but it, it's there's no travel involved. There's no hotels. There's no um, you know. So it's uh, there's some ways in which it's people people appreciate it, and I think depending on the nature of the visit and what's at risk for a particular school, it you, you know you might have a different opinion about whether you really want to be you know do you want to be face to face with the people who are you know have the ability to pull your accreditation or, you know, is, is being on Zoom safer. <laughs> you mentioned staff. I, I'm presuming that's your staff, not the staff of the people who are doing the visiting. Can you explain yeah. the difference? So, between so we, have, we have a, because um, we, we run pretty lanely, pretty efficiently. We have the staff of 11, um, six professional staff, that will like read drafts of reports and um, things like that. We have a person that focuses on finance. 
Uh, and then we have uh, four and a half support staff that help arrange these meetings and things like that. Um, and then we support the commission. So we're really, we, we really are staff to the commission and the commission has a chair, a vice chair, has committees. Um, this, uh, this Thursday, Friday, we'll have seven presidents. Uh, I was gonna say physically appear before us, but not, you know, we'll be on Zoom for 75 minutes each. So that happens at every meeting where you've got institutions literally coming, you know, coming in face to face and having a conversation with the commission. Otherwise, a lot of it is done by by paper paperwork. Um, we will sign two commissioners to each sort of report, a lead, a lead sort of a lead reviewer and a secondary reviewer, and they'll sub submit a, a recommendation to the committee. But again, all the all the decisions are made by the by the commissioners. So you had the uh, good fortune of being on both sides of this, both as a president of a college or university and now president of this association. Any anecdotes you can share with us about the process and your perspective now sitting on both sides? Yeah, Mike, I, uh, I, I shared some of this with my, when I was interviewing for the position, which again was actually, was all, was all on Zoom, never <laughs> met anybody. Um, so at, at Swarthmore, we, we were accredited by the middle states and I, in my position, I would sort of write sections of a report on facilities or operations and things like that. Never was really involved in, um, in, a, in, a, in a big picture way. At Oglethorpe, when um, I thought I had prepared, uh, I thought I'd fully prepared for my interviews, for the jobs, the, the one question that I never occurred to me and that I didn't ask was when our next accredit accreditation was. So I got there in the middle of 2005 and the, the report was already, you know, our, our accreditation was in 2007, but it, it's a two year process. So we were, we needed to be deep in it and I didn't realize that. And we also were a, a complete financial mess. Um, and so, you know, we sort of had two years to try to turn around a, a, a huge operating deficit. And by the time we were in front of the commission, we had made progress, but hadn't turned it around. And so you, you appear in front of the commission and then you wait outside a room after the commission meets for you, for your vice president to tell you what happened. And it's an excruciating, excruciating time. And I remember walking in the room and the, Dr. Silver, who was the, our, our vice president, delivered the news that the commission had put us on uh, public warning. And the headline of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution the next day was, you know, Oglethorpe University about to close or some <laughs> version of that. Oh, so, and then a year later when we went back in front of the commission and, and, we, and we'd made a lot of progress and my team was pretty sure we should come off, um, we should come off that warning status. They continued us on warning for another year. So those, 
those were just, just a nightmare. I mean, so if you had told me back in 2007, eight, that I would ever go work for an accreditor, I would have told you you were completely nuts. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I did not have a good feel for anything that was done. It didn't, it didn't particularly feel fair. It felt um, pretty impersonal uh, and, 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 a, and too much of a mystery to me. It was sort of like it was not, you I know, mean, we knew our issues were financial but it wasn't exactly clear where we needed to get financially in order for them to lift their foot off our neck. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's funny being in this seat. One of the, one of the things that I learned about Nechi, uh, I've got lots of friends, many of whom were in the exec doc program at Penn with us that, have, you know, that are in institutions in New England. And so I reached out to a number of them just to sort of get their sense. And the thing that I heard back from them consistently was that Nechi had this very high touch, very personal, very responsive approach um, to schools. I think in part we could do that because we're, we have, we have only a couple hundred schools, not seven or 800. Um, but it is, it's sort of baked into the culture here. Um, and, and I'm sort of trying to continue that tradition. That's really a fascinating story. Wow. Talk about feeling like your your life might just be ripped out from underneath. Oh my God. Yeah, that must have been really tough. And so I'm, you know, now talking to presidents who were in my shoes, you know, from 15 years ago, and I think they appreciate that I appreciate where they are. Absolutely. It's not, you know, it's not, I don't have to imagine where they are. I know where they are. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so when COVID hit in the spring of 2020, it seems like it should have been years ago now, but it's only been a few months ago. You were still at Oglethorpe and you and your fellow uh, presidents had to make a decision about canceling spring sports. Tell us about that particular situation and, and what that meant, because almost all of your conference colleagues are private institutions, if I have that correct. Yeah, so there were eight in the conference, the Southern Athletic Association, all small liberal arts private schools. So, you know, uh, Rhodes and Hendricks and Birmingham Southern, um, Swanee, uh, you know, all very, all, all, you know, schools that are a whole lot more the same than they are, than they are different. And um, there were, a, at the time, I think there were th th three presidents, including myself, that were retiring in June. And we've been sort of long serving presidents. Um, and the, the early discussions that we had were certainly, um, you know, we were we were hoping we could have a season, and at that point, most schools were planning on opening and having students on campus. And so it's like, well, if we've got student on, students on campus, then if we follow certain protocols, we can 
we, we could try to have an athletic season. Um, you know, schools like ours um, are quite dependent on student athletes for enrollment. You know, we had close to a third of our students played intercollegiate sports. Um, always we got, when I got there, we had seven or 800 students when I left, we had closer to 1500. So it was probably more like a quarter of our students when I left. But all, all the schools, you know, have um, just heavy partition, participation in intercollegiate sports, certainly spend money on, you know, fielding teams, um, but, the, but the tuition revenue and the room and board revenue from, from those students is critical. So um, I think that's where most of us were leaning. Some of us, I think, were more optimistic about whether it could happen than others, but um, you know, back in April, May, June, we were not yet, we did not have to make the decision about what we were gonna do in the fall. I mean, we decided pretty quickly when in the spring when we sent everybody, everybody sent everybody home, that the season was over. I mean, there were a couple, you know, is it, you weren't going to have sent all your students home and continued to play sports. So that was not a, that was not a hard decision. It was more about what are we going to do in the fall. And when I, so when sort of May and June hit, my predecessor had been chosen already. And that was also the case with the other presidents that were leaving. You know, I think we, we were reluctant to, ourselves make the decision. I mean, I was reluctant to make the decision for Oglethorpe because I wasn't going to have to live with the decision. Right. Um, you know, when I left, it was, um, the plan was still in place to bring students back and to play. We sort of canceled travel, um, non-conference travel, shortened the season, delayed the season, had all sorts of protocols put in, put in, but that was the that was the plan. And I think most most schools at that point had the intention of bringing students back. Maybe not 100% of their students, but but things switched pretty dramatically um, late June, July. You know, we're we're in the South. And at, the, at that point, the South was a nightmare. Um, you know, that's where the sort of the hot spot was at, at that point. Uh, governors were opening up too early, and um, and so there was a meeting. I think it might have been my last week that I chose to absent myself from and let let the incoming president sit in for me in late June. So because. I didn't didn't make sense to have us both on the phone and maybe have different points of view and it was just you know and that's when um, that was sort of the start of schools just thinking about maybe we're not going to be able to have students back and 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 that so that rumbled pretty quickly and and it there were there were schools in the conference that felt very strongly that um, we should not play at all. There were some schools that felt strongly that we could, but I think as, as time went on, um, it just became clearer and clearer that, you know, there were 
a whole number of the of schools in our conference that weren't bringing students back. And then and it's a small conference, eight. So if you're, you know, what are you going to try to do it? A conference schedule with four schools or, you know, just. And then the whole AQ thing came up. It's like, what, you know, how many schools would need to participate to get the AQ? And then NCA sort of weighed in and then it was sort of clear there wasn't going to be, there weren't going to be tournaments. And so I, I, I think that all, it sort of fell into place pretty quickly. And I, I don't, again, I wasn't in the meeting. I don't think there were dissenting voices. I think there were, again, people who felt really, felt good about the decision. And then there, I think people sort of, there were people who regretted that's where we ended up. Yeah. How about your athletic directors? Did you feel like they were in the, on the same page as you or, or are they really struggling with it because they had to talk to the coaches? Yeah. So that they, um, you know, I think eventually they would probably come to the same decision, but they, they, they were lagging behind us. I mean, they, you know, I think if we had, I think if, and I can't remember if they, if they made a recommendation to us or not, but I think if they had voted in June or July, they'd have voted to play probably. Um, but um, we had a, it, it, it's a really good conference. Um, schools are a very like mind. The presidents did very well together and the ADs respected that, you know, that the, this was a presidential decision. Really hard for coaches. I mean, really hard for coaches um, in all sorts of ways. But, um, you know, when the season ends, it seems like forever till the next season for a coach, you know, you just, and they, all they're doing is just waiting and waiting and waiting. And then when that next season doesn't happen, it's like, holy moly, you know, it's yeah. just, it's just really hard. So we've got, I know Oglethorpe's now, I mean, all the coaches are still, uh, still on payroll. The assistant basketball coach who I know really well. And I, I was back there over Labor Day weekend and drove into the, college where the gate was down and he was he was working the security booth wow <laughs> you know so they you know they're they're wow trying hard to keep you know keep people busy and occupied and um you know who knows what's going to happen in with the winter sports yeah that was going to be my next question because uh it does you always wonder in schools like that whether the enrollment has been impacted if 25% of your students are athletes, are they deciding to come back or, or we just, is it too early to tell? Well, they came back. So they, you know, they're, they're not on campus because kids aren't on campus for the most part, but they, you know, we set our, our, our enrollment for this, this fall was a, was another record. So they, those kids came back. Um, it's not like, I don't know, you know, they want, I'm not sure where they were going to go to play. Right. right? So, um, Again, I think, you know, I, I, I've always thought that the the biggest issues around this virus weren't, the biggest questions weren't like, were schools going to open? It's like, if they open, are they going to make it to Thanksgiving? And then, you know, what's the spring going to look like? How normal is spring going to be? And I, you know, I don't think it's going to be normal. I don't know if it'll be, you know, if I had to guess, it'll probably look like fall because I don't think a whole lot's going to have changed between spring and fall. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm kind of with you on that. I, I know that people are optimistic about basketball. At least they want to be optimistic, but I'm just not convinced that we can do it safely indoors. 
I'm yeah. just, uh, yeah. I think with ventilation systems and stuff, I think it's, it's still a real hurdle. In the NBA, you know, it's sort of miraculous what they've done, but you know, they colleges can't 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 do it what the NBA did. Right, right. No matter how hard you try it, absolutely. Well, before we end our talk, you have to talk to me about Swarthmore and football. So tell me about that decision and, you know, and what do you think that the uh, long-term results have been from that? Right. So I was, a, I, I was a Swarthmore undergrad, captain of the soccer team, you know, knew a lot of other students that played sports, um, including football. Um, and football been a long time since football had had a lot of success at, at Swarthmore though it was interesting the, the the most successful teams in recent in the recent past and that probably goes back 30 years were right at or right at the time they shut it down hmm. so I mean we when I when I was there all four years didn't win a game um, I think this is true. Howard Howard Cosell came down to announce a, a game between I think it was Swarthmore and Oberlin because we'd each had these long losing streaks and someone's losing streak was going to be broken. So Cosell <laughs> came down, but the team had started to sort of turn the corner a little bit. They'd hired a coach that was successful, and so I think the the year they shut it down, the team had won. I don't know, like four or five games, which they had not, that had not happened in forever. But Swarthmore operated under the system of slots. Right. Um, and each team got a certain number of slots. Football obviously got the most. Um, I remember someone saying that, so what, what a slot did was, um, I mean, you still had to be a good student, obviously, to get into Swarthmore, but, um, the definition of a slot was the coach would use the slot to move up a student a, a bit so the student could get in. So it was a student who otherwise would not have gotten in. Right. Um, and football had 40 slots. Soccer maybe had 10, something like that. And there was not a single person on the football team that would have gotten in but for being slotted. That was the... It was like it was 40 slots a year. Um, and so the, 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 the question sort of, and, you know, when Swarthmore played football for 100 years or so, um, the former chair of the board was Neil Austrian, you know, was the Swarthmore alum, the, pres the uh, president of the NFL. Tom Spock, who was a friend of mine was the NFL, was the CFO of the NFL. So, you know, there was a, yeah. um, and so the, the, the sort of decision made was like, you know, if, if no one on the team is, would be here other than being slotted, then what are we doing? Um, Swarthmore doesn't, unlike Oglethorpe in schools like Oglethorpe, Swarthmore didn't use athletics to, build its class. Right, you know, right. Right. So, um, so the idea was, and a lot of the sports team struggled, was like if you took those 40 slots and you distribute them among other teams, men's and women's, could you lift 
the experience of student athletes at the college. Hmm. So they decided not, I mean, it was not an attempt to, to diminish the number of slots. It was a, it was a redistribution of the slots and redistribution to 20 went to men's teams and 20 went to women's teams. I think if you look at the sort of success of Swarthmore athletics since, you sort of would say that it's probably worked. Um, the soccer teams had a great run, the baseball teams had a great run, the basketball, men's basketball, I think finished second in the country last year or something. I mean, it's, um, but the, you know, sort of the impact of that decision on a certain group of alums of a certain age has lingered. Interesting. And there's people who are still, who are still bitter. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, I mean, it, it's not going to come back. I mean, I, don't, you know, I can't imagine any scenario in which they would decide that it was a good idea to start playing football. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so it was, that was a really difficult time as it um, split the board a little bit, um, certainly split the alumni body and took a huge toll on, on Al Bloom, who was the president. I mean, just uh, people were vicious. Um, well, football is certainly one of the sports that is um, front and center in COVID-19, certainly front and center with um, racial injustice and, and um, uh, equity issues. Whenever you talk about Title IX, there are some people who want to leave football out of the equation and others know that it must be kept in the equation. So I'm sure that was a, a difficult decision, but it also sounds like the, the idea was to make it more representative of what the campus was for Swarthmore, what the student body looked like. For Swarthmore, which is always an important um, value characteristic that presidents have to think about. Yeah, and at Oglethorpe, we were the only one of the eight schools that didn't play football. Right. <laughs> and you know, I had I had some trustees early in my time that I remember one guy said to me the first time he met me at a, like a reception, incoming president, and he was a big football guy, and he. He said, so we did an entire national search and the best we could do was to find a guy that came from the school that cut football, <laughs> like Jesus Christ. Right? Like, um, but I, you know, I was really, I, I, and they were, they're, they're, the conference put a lot of pressure on us to, to add football since we weren't the only ones. And yes. We were the only ones and I just said we weren't doing it now. Can't imagine I'll go through ever going there, but I'm not there anymore, so who knows? Well, Barry added football not too. Yeah, well, Barry added yeah. it. Um, yeah. I think maybe Hendricks added it. So yeah, yeah. they yeah. Um, the, the the when the conference got set up, the rule what the rule they expected us to add it, and I sort of said, well, give us a couple of years to think about it, and then <laughs> by the time a couple of years passed, and you know. We added a couple other sports. They were we added lacrosse, and it all worked. They they have a, they had a couple affiliate members. Um, right. A conference that what's the conference NYU is in in Emory the oh the University Athletic Association UAA right. yeah so a couple of those schools had football but most didn't so those for a while those schools played played with us yeah yeah. Lots of affiliate members in Division Three in different yeah. conferences. Yeah. A lot of folks don't realize that, and that's yeah. a perfectly acceptable solution. Yeah, it, it, it yeah. worked. It worked well. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, Larry, I want to thank you for taking time out of your insane Zoom schedule to <laughs> Zoom with me one more time and talk about your new role and also give us perspective on what accreditation is, because I think that's a really important thing for people who would like to become college presidents to understand the importance of that. So thank you. Good to be with you. Congratulations on, uh, on all you're doing. Thank you very much. I'm excited about it as well. Good, Good to see you. Good to see you.